Cash and his moody music. Moody. moody. 70s porn music. Yeah. <laughs> brown chicken, brown cow. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know it had lyrics. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> brown chicken, brown cow. Next year, we uh, some of the topics we're going to have, we're going to have an episode on semen. <laughs> I asked if it was like submarine kind, and he said... It's going to be an episode all about Scott. Uh, nope. Actually, <sighs> semen was Lewis and Clark's Newfoundland Husky. And so the dog has a really great story and has been on several stamps, Newfoundland stamps. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> right? Also on Hirohito, the emperor of Japan visiting other countries. Um, because that was Why does our script say, don't read this, this is for next week? Because <laughs> don't read this because it's for next week. Then why not open up a different doc and put it in and then copy and paste it later so we don't see it and accidentally read it? Because I had like Be- because cash. 10 minutes to do it. Exactly. Yeah, because cash. That's yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> so are we skipping the entire rest of the script? No, 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 no. no. Just that section. Just that section. Why do we have a script again? <laughs> because Don's dumb. <laughs> you, you haven't realized that for the last six months, that's my goal every time I walk in here. I know. Is to break you. I yeah, know. Break, breaking news, right? <laughs> <laughs> Scott breaks dawn. <laughs> right. Uh, actually, it's actually it's more like this. World ends at ten. News at eleven. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, oh hey, Cash, are we going to do a, a festive um, holiday episode? One of these in the next couple weeks. I need to bring in the festivist poll. Oh. It, it will it will be here on the next episode. No, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> next week, Cash will be wearing the Festivus Bowl. <laughs> Cash is decorating the Festivus Bowl. You don't decorate a Festivus Bowl. That's the whole You're point. You're going to be the decoration. That's the point. <laughs> I always thought the point was at the top of Cash's head. <laughs> yeah. Counter down. Meanwhile, back at the podcast. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Look at them, madame. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Oh. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Oh, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Homer, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a planet from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Uzbekistan. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.
Welcome to Stamp Show here today, episode 102. I'm Cash, E equals MC Square. I'm Scott. This is Tom. And I'm your host, Dawn. This week, we will be discussing Mulberry Madison. Whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is. That's it. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for... Yes, it's been one of those mm-hmm. days. <laughs> Another brutal Monday. And this day in history. On this day in 1915, 101 years ago today, Albert Einstein presents general relativity to the Prussian Academy of Sciences. So we have five facts that no one probably cares about, so let's get started. Number one, a compass provided early inspiration. When he was five years old, Einstein's father gave him a compass. Einstein asked himself how, and thus began Einstein's lifelong journey to understand unseen forces. A compass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Compasses unseen are cool. Unseen forces. That's like my wife's hand heading toward the back of my head. And if she if it travels at E M C and it whacks you for the square. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, he found happiness in strange things. In nineteen oh seven, Einstein said that he had the happiest thought of his life, and it was about a man falling from a building. Einstein, I know, Einstein realized that a man falling alongside a ball would not be able to recognize the effects of gravity on the ball. (laughs) Because he's more more concerned (laughs) with cement poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey, that ball isn't moving. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's all relative. This connection between gravity and acceleration became known as the equivalence principle. I can think of a different name for it than that. (laughs) Deceleration trauma? Yeah. <laughs> that thump. Thump. That was the guy's name. <laughs> Bob Thump. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, no, now, well, if, bounced, if, you, if you take if bounced, out... If it would be Bob Thump Thump. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you take out the, the whole morbid aspect of it, it's like... Oh, wow. Yeah, it was like the little light bulb came on. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, hey, yeah, what a cool thing. Yeah, so I can see him happy about that, not so much the, the falling. The falling forever. Yeah, but that was Edison. Yeah, oh, well, or, or yeah, the, the light bulb was already inb- invented so he could go ding, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the light bulb idea. There you go. And moving right along. Number three, a frenemy accused Einstein of stealing relativity. <gasps> The guy who he threw off the building, probably. Um, uh, no. Oh, okay. I don't think it was a relative. <gasps> Why do I always get the groaner lines? Because I think that I'm. Would the you only rather one. have the groan than the crickets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Here, just for Scott. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yep. David Hilbert was a fellow scientist and friend of Einstein's until their relationship took a negative turn. Hilbert developed a theory of general relativity and even published it five days before Einstein. 
What started as camaraderie and a supportive exchange of ideas turned into a bitter rivalry that included accusations of plagiarism. Mm. That's because Einstein didn't have spell check. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Took him longer to publish his paper. Mm. He was on a mm. dial-up modem. Could be. He was busy co-inventing the tube sock. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Since then, historians have examined the proofs and say that Hilbert's lacked certain key ingredients to make the theory work. Oh, feel the burn, Hilbert. You deserve to be thrown off that building. It wasn't him. Oh. It no. was hypothetical. Oh, Bob Thump Thump. That'll be enough. Number four, the introduction of the theory was huge. Hello. <laughs> I'm Relativity. <laughs> Yay! I'm huge. I'm huge. <laughs> On November 25th, 1915, Einstein presented his masterwork to the Prussian Academy of Science, where he introduced general relativity. The paper was published the following year, and while the man and the concepts received great attention, it wasn't until he was able to confirm the predictions that he became a towering figure in scientific achievement and a worldwide celebrity. It was a big moment for Einstein. Mm-hmm. We're going to get some, uh, probably some emails going, hey! <laughs> yeah, we're going to get a nasty email from a guy named Bob Thump. <laughs> right? Need to add the disclaimer to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Any mention of this, all people are fictional. <laughs> Any relation to real people is purely coincidental. Including Cash. He's fictional as well. <laughs> no bobs were thumped. No bobs episode. were thumped. In the makeup of this podcast. For the stamp collector, the U.S. has put out two stamps which picture Einstein. They are an 8 cent and 15 cent U.S. stamps, numbers 1285 and 1774, plus many from other countries. Some Einstein facts. Did you know that Albert Einstein is a lifetime member of the Montreal Pipe Smokers Club? <laughs> no, I did not. A life member. A life member. Yeah. Well, I see it didn't save his. Uh, he never wore any socks. I heard that. I Which is you. why he was not a co-inventor of the tube sock. Or maybe he was and just refused to wear them. Ah. Mm-hmm. Einstein shunned any recreational activity that required mental agility. Oh, I'm with him on this one. <laughs> I was wondering if that co- included stamp collecting. Yeah, I mean, when I'm off the clock, I don't want to be doing math. Forget that. I do that eight hours a day. Well, actually, off the subject, I was Did reading we- up about Tesla. And Tesla, I want to see if they make a stamp for Tesla, which is a coil stamp. So you could have the Tesla coil. <laughs> oh, I, I've heard this one that um, he was offered the presidency of Israel in 1952, but he declined. Yep. And as a kid, he spoke very little until the age of nine. He was too busy thinking. Yeah, he didn't have anything to say. You can't hold that against him. Mm. And when he died, his final words died with him. The nurse at his side didn't understand German. Why don't we just move along to the listener emails? Sounds good. I think so. Too. I think Bob would approve. So we get emails at Stamp Show here today. So summon the answer squad. Hey, 
So, Tom, you've got something, huh? I do. I'm actually going to do sort of a kind of sort of unboxing because y'all were in Chicago and left me behind and I had an opportunity to open something and you weren't here. So it's from Patrick Reedy. Hey, Patrick. Patrick. And he sent something to Scott and I. And since he sent something to you and Don earlier. Mm -hmm. So first I will unveil stuff that nobody can see because it's radio. And then I will read his letter. So first I will give Scott a chance to see his stuff. Ah, my water bottle. Oh, wow. Coasters. Sweet. He made made Stamp Show Here Today coasters. Wow. You are a multi-skilled fellow, Patrick. Absolutely. I love it. Uh Uh-huh. So I will uh, read his letter. Hey, Scott and Tom. I recently sent a few items to Cash and Dawn that I thought would fit into their collections. As a thanks for all you guys do on the podcast. I mentioned that I had not forgot you two. So here are some items I found for you. Scott, you mentioned you like stamps printed on non-traditional materials. The Faroe Islands stamp has actual tanned codfish skin on it. <laughs> I, was wondering what that, I was wondering what that was. Wow. The Canadian flag stamp is printed on material, possibly linen or rayon. Yes. That is so weird. That's big. That looks like a postcard. Oh, it's a $5 stamp. It's a peel-in stick $5. I was actually going to buy one of those and mail it back to the office that from New York. That is weird. But uh, the clerk at the at the uh, Canadian counter kind of brought up the fact that it probably would not arrive because somebody would take it out of the mail. Yeah, that that's definitely is like a cloth postcard. For a five dollar, a giant five dollar stamp, which takes up the entire one. Ooh, get this away from! I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> We're all glad to weirded out by it. <laughs> the, the cod skin stamp is like uh. awesome. Thank you. It has a piece of cod skin on it. Therefore, it is a cod piece. A piece. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. All jokes aside. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was not able to come up with an interesting cover. I just wanted to get these out. Keep up the good work, Patrick. And P.S. I hope you enjoy the coasters. This is neat. I know. And my daughter will flip because it's, oh. it's bugs, including spiders. Ooh, spiders. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. oh I saw a great movie. Kazakhstan oh. spiders. Oh, I saw a great movie. Look. Oh, I want to see those. Thank you, Patrick. How very cool. Yeah, these are very cool. My daughter will dig those. Oh, my goodness, And yes. the funny part is the other stuff he sent me is actually a set of horses in different sporting events. Like racing. basketball? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. No, racing, jumping, polo, um, different things like that. Water polo? Because yes. they have seahorses. That's enough. <laughs> Where's the crickets? My daughter will probably like those, but my wife will actually really like those. She's not really a stamp collector, but she's a major horse fanatic. And I, I am thinking she will like those a lot better than the bugs. Yes. <laughs> no, my daughter will dig the bugs. I cannot imagine your wife liking bugs. But my wife will dig the horses. It's one of the first things I got her was actually the uh, the U.S. Um, carousel horses. Mm. Oh, and oh. she loved those. They're cash. Carousel horses. Mm-hmm. I love carousel horses. Mm-hmm. 
There's also that's there's also a, that's a little little hint hint. Oh, okay. Yes. There's also a block that's carousel animals. Mm. It's got what does it have? It has a deer and a camel. I know that. I forget yeah. the other two. It has it's a strip of five? I think it no, is. It's, it's a, a block, block of four. four. It's a block. Of, and there's oh. actually two different ones. Oh, okay. No. Well, I know there's a deer in there, and I know there's a camel in there, and I forget the rest. Well, getting back to spiders. Oh. We, me and Don saw a fantastic movie. Well, actually, oh. it's the opposite of fantastic. King of the Spiders. No, Kingdom of the Spiders. I thought it was King of the Spiders. No, Kingdom. Kingdom? Mm-hmm. Okay, Kingdom of the Spiders, starring... William Shatner. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can anybody say B-movie? In oh. all his glory. No, 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 no. This was not a B-movie. This was not much that lower than that. <laughs> so an F. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. It was so bad. Well, the only thing that saved it was it was a Riff Tracks version of it. Yeah, so MST3K guys did uh-huh. comments. Because if you had to watch it on your own... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Great. That was awesome. That's awesome. Awesome letter. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, that is awesome. Thanks, Patrick. Now it's time for the Stamp Show Here Today Museum Contribution. If you have a stamp and a story to contribute, email us and you can tell your story on the podcast. Our museum contribution for this podcast is an engraved picture of John Marshall from the stamp issue of 1894 and 1902. John Marshall was the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Or the first, or or the the 10th, depending on how you count and when you say the United States started. Mm -hmm. Fun with numbers. Now, my daughter April is becoming a lawyer, so maybe she should be listening to this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be cited in a lot of legal journals from now on. Yeah, not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, the Marshall Court opinions helped lay the basis for United States constitutional law, and many say the Supreme Court a co-equal branch of government. And that's why uh, the Obama nominee being held up for whoever the new president was, if it were, that's why this is important, is because of Marshall. Before Marshall, nobody cared about the Supreme Court. They really, literally did almost nothing. Yes, and some of his decisions were unpopular. Marshall, along with Daniel Webster, who argued some of the cases, was the leading Federalist of the day, pursuing Federalist Party approaches to building a stronger federal government over opposition of the Jeffersonian Republicans who wanted stronger state governments. Yeah, and don't confuse this where the Federalists were the Republicans and the Jeffersonians were the Democrats. They were totally different back then. I love this. So in 1800, um, the... Federalists took over, and uh, John Adams, who had lost the election, he was in the lame duck period where he couldn't really get anything done. Well, he got uh, a bill passed real quick and then started appointing a whole bunch of judges. They were called midnight judges, and he just appointed them, stacked all the courts. He wanted federalism to survive with the courts. And so... John Marshall was his Secretary of State at the time. And the Secretary of State is responsible for handing out all these judgeships. So John Marshall is running all around and he's handing in, and you're a judge, and you're a judge, and you're a judge, and everybody giving out all these Federalists, these uh, judgeships. Well, clock struck midnight, 
and John Marshall wasn't um, the Secretary of State anymore. And so at that point, everything stopped. And this one guy, he didn't get his uh, appointment, and his name was William Marbury. And uh, he said, I'm going to be a judge. And Jefferson said, "Uh, no, no, you're not. Is that the Mulberry we were talking about at the beginning of the show? It might be. (laughs) So that's the Marbury. Or Mulberry. Mulberry. Or I don't know. I think think he's also uh, in here called uh, Marby. Marby, Marbury. Marbury. Whatever his name is. Something like that. James Madison becomes Secretary of State at midnight, and he does not give Marbury the job, plus a bunch of other stuff. He goes, you snooze, you lose, and that's the Madison. The Madison. Well, they did what anyone would do. They shake hands. They say, well, play it, old sport. Good try, and pip-pip off to the park for ice cream and stroll by the lake. No. Actually, they sued each other, and in 1803... In a four-to-nothing decision, John Marshall, who didn't give Marbury the paperwork, remember that midnight thing, so he's on the court and he says, the court can enforce stuff, Jefferson has to do what the court says. Yeah, so you talk about a stacked decision. You go to the guy who didn't pass out the judgeship, and you say, you know that judgeship you, you didn't pass out? Should it still count? And of course he goes, yes, it should count. And, by the way, the court is really, really big and powerful now. This expanded the power of the court. They can say some law is not going to happen. They gave themselves lawmaking powers. Marshall was also the judge in the Burr conspiracy trial? Yep. Alexander Burr. You remember him? That would be Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Oops. Uh Uh-huh. Alexander Burr. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) (laughs) It, well, it's like a J-Lo thing, or uh, a uh, Brangelina. Uh, Bran- uh, Brangelo, or... Yeah, they're, they're no longer a thing. Oh, okay. The Burr trial in 1807 was presided over by Marshall together with Judge Cyrus Griffin. Remember the Louisiana Purchase? Well, Aaron Burr wanted to be king of that area. He worked to get an army together to attack Mexico and makes plans. Well, the U.S. chases him down in the Alabama area, and so off to the court he goes. Marshall narrowly construed the definition of treason provided in the Constitution. He noted that the prosecution failed to prove that Burr had committed an overt act, as the Constitution required. As a result, the jury acquitted the defendant, leading to increased animosity between the president and the chief justice. Yeah, this is a guy who killed Alexander Hamilton and then tried to become the king of Louisiana. How famous would he have been? If he had been found guilty or something like that. More like infamous. Or infamous. Mm-hmm. Now back to the stamp. Some of the expensive ones, the 1894, number 263, and the 1901, number 313, $5 values, cat hundreds or thousands of dollars. But the 1954, 40 cent stamp, number 1050, cats at just $1.75. And the 25 cent, number 2415, cats at just 50 cents, so pretty much postage. Yeah, these are, uh, to get him on a stamp, can either be very, very expensive or very, very cheap. Scott. Yes. The first bureau issue. Tell us about it. The $5 Ham- or Marshall. Hamilton. <laughs> now, now I'm totally on Ham- Hamilton. 
like, what do you want to know about it? It's, uh, so the first bureau issue, obviously, was the first definitive issue produced by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing after the banknote companies lost their contract and the contracts all moved to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And these are differentiated from the small banknote issue, which is the last issue printed by a private banknote company prior to that by adding small triangles to the upper corners of the stamps. And then, of course, they added a couple of high, higher value stamps to the end of the set. That's pretty much covers the expensive issue, or the, uh, also known as the first bureau issue. Then you have the uh, Liberty Series, which has the 40-cent stamp, which is John Marshall. And that was printed in, in uh, two different ways. One was uh, by a wet printing process, and one's by a dry printing process. And that had to do with the moisture content of the paper as the stamps were printed. Generally, the wet printing process up until the 50s was pretty much the standard printing method. You would dampen the paper so that the ink would be accepted into the fibers of the paper and it would adhere to the paper more easily. This also caused a slight wicking of the ink into the fibers of the paper, causing a softer image. But it required approximately a 35% water content in the paper. In the 50s, they experimented with a dry printing process. This allowed them to use less water content, and it also allowed them to use pre-gummed paper. And that only required a 10 to 15% water content of the paper as the stamps were being printed. And when you look at the stamps, it gives a much clearer, sharper impression than the wet printing process, which has a softer, fuzzier impression. And uh, that's about all I got to say about stamps. Excellent. What more do you want to know? <laughs> that's way too much information for just a passing. Well, you can buy the five dollar stamp for many hundreds, or you can buy the forty cent stamp for probably forty cents if you. And <laughs> and, and you can collect it in different ways too. Uh, I know that the Liberty Series stamps are sought after, just like the some of the earlier stamps, as solo usages. It's a forty cent stamp which did not pay a domestic, a specific domestic rate. So you're looking at possibly an overseas rating or a multiple, not a, not a single ounce rating. A four uh, ounce airmail rate would be interesting. So uh, finding a solo usage on a commercial cover. Oh, that's got to be a very valuable stamp to find single use. I mean, you're talking maybe $100. Yeah, but versus a quarter for the stamp, yeah. Yeah. And you probably have to search for years to find one. Now, good luck finding a $5 stamp on a commercial cover from the late 19th century. Oh, actually, did you see that uh, I think it was Brookman put out a little um, price guide on the $5 stamp on piece. And it, I think it catalogs like $3 or $4 or whatever it is. If it's on a bank tab, it's like... Six, uh, $10. If it's on a foreign one, it's $15. If it's on a parcel wrapper, it's it jumps from like $15 up to like $100. And if it's on a registered letter, it's like a five or $600 item. Well, but that's the $5 stamp. That's not the 40 cent stamp. Well, they only had listed the $5 one. Right. Because yeah. that's the hard, that's one of the harder ones to find. Yeah. 
but still a huge, 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 right. huge right because they were mostly they were both mostly used for uh, bank transfers, uh, coin you know mm-hmm. coin bags things like that, or parcels. Yep. Um, rarely would you see them used on a high value registered cover. That's what makes it so valuable. Our expert topic is a continuation from Chicago Pex. We spoke to Andy Coopersmith and Christoph Gartner about auctions. Enjoy. Sure. Widen everything else up. I'll answer what I can. I'm here with uh, Andy. Why don't you give uh, them a entrance to who you are? Uh, Andy Coopersmith. Uh, I've been a professional auctioneer and philatelist since 1995. Cool. With give me your credentials because I'm going to ask um, you about the market. Well, now, now I'm self-employed. Um, I've Ran David Feldman USA for a couple of years. I ran HR Harmer for a couple of years. Uh, worked at Siegel for six years. Christie's and Schiff prior to that. So we've got a fair uh, person who's been around a very long time who knows the market. I'd like to think so. <laughs> where do you where do you see it today? What's going on? Well, the, the trend that I've been seeing for the American stamp market is that the better stamps continue to get better. The everything in the middle or below isn't getting better. Um, it kind of mirrors society in a way where people are saying the rich get richer and everyone else is not doing as well. It's kind of where we are with, with stamps, you know. It's, it's the same thing. Um, That's a good one. I'm going to take that one. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, it's the nice of, get nicer, it's, it's and the true crappy stamps. gets crapper. Right. I mean, it just that's kind of where we are. You yeah. know, if you, if I were to, I know we're on a radio podcast, but if I were to graph for you uh, and I made the the horizontal axis, the x-axis quality, and the y-axis price. What you would see is an exponential curve, where if you started at zero, and you moved as you moved to the right, you'd see a slight increase. But when you start getting to the really really top quality, all of a sudden you would see a very sharp cut cut to the top. It's an exponential curve, right? And, that, and that's what you're going to see. Very and, very uh, steep at the end. Very, very steep at the end, where the difference, in, a minor, minor difference, can be a huge, huge difference in price. Yeah. So, is um, that worldwide, or is that just U.S.? Well, that's with U.S. You know, worldwide, um, you know, the, the, the countries that are doing better are the ones that have an economy. You know, <laughs> India. You know, now that they have some disposable income, they're collecting their own stamps. The the, the prices are going up. China is the same way. You know, stamps are like any collectible. They're value is determined by the laws of supply and demand. So in, in, in U.S., the old U.S., like I was just talking about the classic U.S., right. the top quality, you have a low supply, high demand, huge price. The off quality, high supply, low demand, because they weren't as good at centering and getting them lined up, they just were getting them out as fast as they can out of the post yep. offices, is much more common and much much lower. And, and in foreign, that's kind of what you're up against, too. You know, in these countries... Where you know they don't have any money, the demand is low, the supply is constant, the demand is low, and the price is low. But if if, if there's a push in demand, you get a push in price, and that's the key. Understandable. So anyway, while we're waiting for Christoph, the the um, auction commissions. We always talk about auction commissions, and you have some insight on that. Well, I've been an auctioneer for 20 years. I, yeah. I know the drill. I yes. know how things work. Uh, 
and you know it's always an interesting situation with auction commissions because what you have to understand is when you consign to an auction company you are partnering with them okay and the more the collection brings the more money everyone earns okay and people get short-sighted with commissions yeah you know and I, I mean you have to look at how much works involved because I can tell you what people do what auctioneers do let's say you consign the $20,000 collection <laughs> and you're paying they're getting 15 from the buyer and let's say they're getting 15 from the seller they're getting 30% that's $6,000 yep. okay so they're gonna say on a $6,000 collection it's gonna cost me X to print to mail uh, to have viewing to conduct the auction you know, Etzel has a cost associated oh, with it. <laughs> if, you know, depending, assuming you're not paying shipping to the auction company, right. it's another cost. Okay, then you know, with the, they're going to say I've only X Y amount of hours to spend on this. Okay, and Y amount of hours costs me, you know, because that's got a cost associated with it too. Right. So if the collection really requires a lot of work, you may not get it because you're only, you're only getting Y hours. And if you're not getting that work, you're not getting as much money. So you may win the battle of getting paying less commission, but you lose the war because you get less. And the goal is to get the most that you can. Right. And, you know, in some cases, it, it's a no-brainer because it's a bulk and it's sold as bulk. Other times, you know, you have a great single item, and that's all there is, and that's it. You know, I mean, we had a guy walk up here at the table with a with a CIA invert. You know, it's a ten, twelve thousand dollars stamp. He gets a certain flat rate commission, and that's it. Right. You know, but if you're coming in with a ten thousand dollar consignment, and I've got to put ten hours into it, there's no profit in there for me. Yeah. It's almost not worth it. Well, you also mentioned the CIA invert. Mm -hmm. You know, you could get pretty close to zero percent commission because of the right. such a small amount of work. Right. It's it's the key to the key to profitability for an auctioneer is average lot value. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, auctioneers have to make lots. They've got to describe those lots. They've got to scan and photograph those lots. And today. You know, it used to be that you would write the bulk lots and, that, and you didn't have to do any photography. Then people started picking things out, putting them on stock pages, scan a couple of pages. Now they scan the whole thing on the internet. Yeah. Because you want to give people who can come to the auction an equal opportunity to bid and maximize the proceeds. So if you want them to put the time into doing that, you've got to pay for that time, and that's usually more commission. So you may want to rethink going in there and demanding this, uh, the lowest commission you can get because it may not be in your best interest at the end of the day. Well, the other thing too is if somebody has a collection in an album and they come and they drop it on your desk and say, how much commission? It may be much better for them to do the work beforehand or not. It, the more work you do beforehand to sort it and organize it, yes, better off you are because if an auctioneer doesn't have to spend time sorting your holding yeah. and it's already sorted, they can put more time into doing the philatelic work, more time into description, more time into making photographs, more time into things like that. But if you're going to do that, don't make assumptions about how it should be presented. Talk to your auctioneer first got it, and got it, let, got it. get his guidance or, um, on, on what where's the best way to spend your time and ways that are a total waste of time. Don't strip your albums and put them on stock pages or put them in glassine bags. You know, just show it to the auctioneer. He'll give you some advice. If you're willing to do the work, they're not going to argue. Yeah. You know? And, you know, so get some advice before you start playing with stuff that you don't know what you're doing. So we, when we talk on the uh, inter internet, we tend to say that a person with a nice collection should be paying about 10%. Is that realistic? 
it's realistic. It's 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 realistic. I mean, obviously, if you bring one but again, stamp and but, say but here, again, you're, you're not if you're if you're bringing it in, if you're bringing it in to the um, no, that that just okay. Okay. if you're bringing it in to the auction house and there's they don't have to travel, yeah, and you don't have to ship it, you don't have to pay for shipping. You know, it's it's a lot easier to do the deal, you know, so to speak, to, to take a commission. But if they've got to travel, you know, if I've got to bring my car and I got to load up my car and then I got to drive into New York and I got to unload my car, and, you know, that you got to pay more for that. You know, you're paying for the service. That that's a good point. Um, what would you say is the value of the collection that you would actually drive out to help a person? With? Well, look, it all depends on the circumstance. You know, okay. I mean, I mean, for example, I'm here, I'm here in Chicago at the show. Right. Um, you know, somebody had contacted Christoph's uh, company about a collection that that she had, and it was an hour away. And you know, I'm here at night. You know, and I just, you know, he said, my, I just went up and did it. Yeah. You know, went up, picked it up, brought it back, spent my time here at the booth between working with customers and clients to pack it up and take it to FedEx and ship it. You know, if I'm home, I probably wouldn't go. You know, I'm not going out on a two thousand dollar postage slot. Yeah. You know, but. Um, each, each individual will make that determination for him or herself. You know, they may do it if they, if by coincidence they have a collection in the town next door they've got to go. Yeah. They may pop over. So it's always good to, to, to reach out. You ask the auctioneer what he's willing to do, and not dealer what he's willing to do, not willing to do. Maybe he'll keep your name in a file, and if he's in the area, he'll give you. A, pay you a visit, uh, or you can meet you somewhere, you know, but give as much notice as you can, and be honest about what you have, and, 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 and uh, how much bulk there is. So it sounds like that's the most important thing, is lead time, so if you, want, if you want to sell something like immediately, you may not be getting the best auction. Well, if, if, you, if right. you're willing to wait a week or two or three for people to come out and see it, you'll get a better deal. Um, maybe. 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 Depends if the auctioneer's got to ship it back, yeah. drive it back. Um, depends on the auctioneer's auction schedule. You know, I mean, if you have a guy with a sale every two months and he can come out and you can sell it in three months, it's fine. But if you have a guy with a sale every four months or every six weeks, every six months, you may have you, you may miss the cycle. You know, so that that's a big issue too is what their what their auction schedule is, what their consignment deadlines are. And when you consign, you know, you, you, again, talking about lead time, if you if an auctioneer's deadline, everything's got to be written by December 1st, and you give it to him November 30th, you know, good luck. You know? I mean, It's going to be one line. <laughs> most likely. Yeah. But if you can give them some more time, you know, that, that, that can only work to your advantage. Yeah. So, just something else to think about. You brought up a really good point that terrifies everybody. What's that? When you pick something up, you send it via Federal Express or something back. Right. Have you ever had a loss with Federal Express? You know, stuff like that. It put their mind at ease that this is not something. There, look, I mean, things happen. You know, I, I fortunately, in my 20 years, I haven't had a loss where a consignment that I've shipped from that I've picked up has been lost. I've had buyers not receive their goods. Um, you know, rare, but it happens. Yeah. I'll tell you a, a very funny story. I was working at Siegel, and this gentleman had a, his primary residence in the winter up north, and he had his Florida residence for the for the winter. Sorry, in the, the residence up north. And um, so he bought a twenty-five thousand dollars stamp, which was shipped by Federal Express to his 
house up north. Unfortunately, he'd left for Florida. Oh, okay. And um, FedEx left it on the door, even though they were supposed to obtain a signature. They didn't do it. They left it on the door. Guy didn't get it. Okay. For months. Didn't get. Didn't get it. Well, insurance pays the claim. Fine. Guy buys another stamp, so it all all works out at the end of the day. This guy moves back to his summer residence. A few months after he moves back, his neighbor knocks on his door and says, Hey, buddy, I found this on your doorstep. I took it in for you. <laughs> okay? Insurance company, you know, so it comes back yeah. to, to the auctioning house. We resell it. Insurance company actually made money on it. But, uh, you know, so, so you have losses, but you never know. Things do turn yeah. out. And... Um, you know, but that happens. But I, fortunately, as I said, I've never had a something I've shipped back lost. And almost all auctioneers will, it's part of their contracts, and they will tell you this, that if as soon as they leave with it, it's covered under their insurance. Yeah. So in the event that does happen, you know, you are compensated. So just, just make sure they fill in the number where it says insurance value, because that's usually a blank line that gets filled in. So make sure you're comfortable with that, and make sure you understand that if they say to you it's insured for $10,000, that's prior to commission. So they're going to, their insurance company is going to say, well, it, we're assuming you would have sold at the auction for 10, you're paying 15%, so you're going to get 8,500. So just be, be advised. That's a good tip for everybody. That's a good one. You're at the Christoph Gardner table right now, so uh, mm-hmm. how is their auctions doing? Chris's auctions are doing very, very well. Um, you know, I noticed one over here, a million seven. For yeah, um, yeah, three times, three times a year, Christoph has uh, auction week over in Germany. Plus, he owns uh, various other auction companies that conduct auctions throughout the year uh, in Germany. Um, I think there's like 30 million annual sales plus plus. So um, no, the auctions are great. There's really something for everyone. Um, you really should log on and look for something that you can use because there's it always invariably it turns out perfect you know he's standing right here yeah why, why don't we ask him to give his uh, auction a plug sure hey Chris my friend is doing a podcast it's your chance to give your auction a plug give yourself some advertising not a problem <laughs> Yeah, you can talk. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this all gets edited. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So uh, you were telling me a little bit about your beginnings in exhibiting and stuff like that too. So yeah, look, I started with nine collecting stamps, and since uh, eleven, I twelve, I started uh, exhibiting, and with fourteen, I reached the international level. And uh, oh, hold on, it, at fourteen years old, you were an international yes. exhibitor. Wow, yeah, yeah. that's impressive. And yes, and I I, I needed money for my exhibits, and. Uh, my parents were four generations teacher, my mom aunt, so there was no money for the crazy kid's hobby. So <laughs> I needed to get some money and what I did in school and after school, uh, when I was 13, I started uh, selling stamps and it uh, went up very well. And so this is uh, how I came uh, to the job and uh, to the company. And uh, it was funny, like uh, last time I exhibited international was uh, 1984. And 29 years later, I brought as the main sponsor uh, the Royal Collection from England uh, uh, to Melbourne, the same hall, uh, same international exhibition, and uh, I was the sponsor of the Court of Honor and other things. And uh, that was a nice memory from that time. And look, maybe in some years I start again exhibiting. Uh, at least I'm having some uh, plans for philatelic literature. And I have a big collection, like five rooms with uh, philatelic books and literature. 
in the buildings I have in Germany, 28,000 square feet is there, and it's like an international meeting point for philatelists. There were several uh, exhibitions there, like for the World uh, Football Championship, but also I had the biggest golf philatelic exhibition when I held a tournament, or we had some seminars for philatelic judges, or a lot of uh, meetings for um, philatelic societies and always my house is open and free for meetings and uh, so uh, to join the big philatelic family and if somebody has some thoughts about future philately or some interesting programs they always can contact me uh, personally and I'm always uh, very open to, to discuss uh, a lot of things like uh, uh, exhibition, judging, uh, like uh, future literature, uh, future of uh, use in philately and, uh, and we're planning uh, uh, to do some postal stationary worldwide catalogs uh, with a good group here in America. Yeah. But uh, this is all at the beginning, so it will be a 10-year plan. So <laughs> let's see what comes in the future. Yeah, there you go. Okay. That's a big item. Yes, we'll see. I think that's interesting for some... Uh, that absolutely was good. I would like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. Wikipedia, Backstory with the American History Guys, The Stuff You Should Know Podcast, and Hip Hughes History. What is that? You forgot to thank me. That's an airplane. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. For breaking me? And Cash. <laughs> and Cash, I got the goof. Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for joining us for episode 102. This has been Cash, Scott, Tom, and I'm your host, Dawn. You can reach us with your questions or comments at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com, Twitter at stampshowhd, or leave a message on our Google Voice number, 1949-873-4298. You can also check out our website at stampshowheretoday.com or follow us on Facebook or watch us on YouTube. And as always, keep collecting. Hi, this is Bob Prager with Gary Poser Incorporated. And we're in Long Island, New York, in New Jersey. And our philosophy at Gary Poser Incorporated is this. We would rather pay very fair prices on 9 out of 10 collections that we look at versus trying to just offer very low prices on 1 out of 2 and making a big score. That's never our philosophy. So if you want to be treated fairly, please give us a call anytime at 800-323-4279. And again, my name is Bob Prager.